Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Please check out radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions and you can visit our website irishhistoryshow.ie for a full archive of all our previous episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or on Facebook facebook.com forward slash theirishhistoryshow. If you get a chance Please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it, and we're so grateful for all the support and feedback we get from you, the listeners. Today, my co-host, John Dorney, is going to be speaking to John Joe McGinley about the Irish-American mob. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Irish History Show. It's just me, John Dorney, and no Cahill Brennan for this one. But I have with me a very interesting guest, uh, John John McGinley, who readers of the Irish Story will know for his very interesting articles, generally connected with County Donegal and particularly with Guidor. But John Joe has a new book out. It's called Irish Wise Guys, the Stories of the Most Notorious Irish-American Gangsters. And John Joe, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks, John. Thanks for having me. And hello to all your listeners. John Joe, my first question is, you know, what got you interested in the story of Irish-American gangsters? The answer's rather long-winded, but I'll get there in the end. <laughs> I moved to uh, Donegal with my wife, and we've got four boys, uh, two of whom are autistic. So I spent a lot of my time looking after them. But in my working life, writing and social media were a big part of it. And so in the spare time that I had, I decided to create a website and a social media suite called Wild Atlantic Ador, which... I used to pay something back to the parish that we live in because we were being made so welcome uh, living here. And in that uh, website, wedlanticthegador.com, I was writing about the history of the parish and a lot of the stories of the individuals that make up the history of Guido. And one of the people I came across was a guy called Vincent Mad Dog Call, who, despite being raised in America, was actually born in Guido. He's sometimes called the gangster from Guido. And I wrote a blog for the website about it, and it seemed to go down very well. And in the process of writing that, I was fascinated by the other characters that I came across in his life. People with strange names like Only the Killer Madden and Jack Legs Diamond, and a whole ream of Irish-American gangsters in New York, Boston, and Chicago. So I decided that this was something I wanted to explore. So I pitched an idea to Ireland's own magazine. And in that magazine, I said, I wanted to write an art- articles about these men, because it was mostly men that were the Irish-American gangsters of the 20th century. And I, there was a whole ream of different characters. There was like John Morrissey, who was a US congressman, a brothel keeper, and the bare knuckle boxing champion of the world. There was Emmett Dalton, who was part of the infamous Dalton brothers. You know, there was obviously only the killer madam, and people with exotic names like Peg Leg Lornigan and Frank the Irishman Sheeran. So I said to myself, there's a book in this, because I wanted to look not just only at the men, but I wanted to look at the gangs that formed them because they weren't loners. There was organised crime needs a gang to be organised with. And I wanted to look at gangs such as the White Hand Gang from New York, the North Side Gang from Chicago, and even the most infamous Westies, the most recent gang from New York. So I said to myself, people are fascinated by organised crime. There's a book in this. So I put it together and it seems to be going down well. And I think the reason behind that is that people are fascinated by a gangster's existence. You know, these are people that know what they want and they go after it and get it most of the time. They strive to be in control of their own destiny and for the most part, they achieve it until their inevitable downfall. And I think everybody likes to watch and witness that downfall. Because if you read in my book, 
regardless of how much money they made, regardless of how much they bribed the law enforcement or how well protected they were, most of the Irish wise guys met an untimely end, usually as a result with a feud with another Irish wise guy or the Italian mafia. So that was how my interests got into it, and that's how I put Irish wise guys together. Not to glorify these men, but to tell the tale of how they became gangsters, how they played their part in the history of organised crime in America, and the interactions they had with other gangsters and law enforcement and politicians and how they met their untimely end as Irish wise guys. Yeah, I mean, you kind of answered the first part of my second question there, John Joe, but like, you know, we're fascinated with gangsters and the idea of the rise and fall of gangsters. And a lot of it obviously is tied up with the depiction in popular culture, in films, you know, such as Gangs of New York, Martin Scorsese's film about the early Irish gangs, Miller's Crossing with Gabriel Byrne, The Departed, which is kind of a fictionalized version of Whitey Bulger's career. I suppose the, the funny thing is, like, you know, are these people that we'd want to avoid in our everyday lives, but we love watching depictions of them on the screen? Uh, well, I think we like, we want you to see the depictions on screen because uh, usually with these the great films you talked about, you know, Goodfellas, Gangs of New York, two of my, my favorite movies, the actors are superb, the direction's superb, and the narrative is superb. You know, the only problem is that sometimes <laughs> it's not the real real history. <laughs> but hey, that's Hollywood <laughs> and that's movies. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, I we spend a lot of our time here on the Irish History Show giving out about certain films depicting Irish historical events and how accurate they are. But the reality is also that these, um, you know, they're so compelling that they actually form a lot of people's understanding for, for the movie Michael Collins, for example. But just, uh, you know, of course it's fiction and so on, but if you look at, for example, Gangs of New York, it does depict a reality, doesn't it, where the mid-19th century saw a wave of very poor Irish immigrants coming into New York, and some of them did get involved in what we call organised crime. Can you talk about that in the early Irish gangs of the mid-19th century? Yeah, I think if you look at the gangs of New York, it does actually depict the terrible conditions that the Irish diaspora, most of them fleeing from the famine, had to endure. And it does show the battle between the early Irish immigration who'd settled themselves up. You know, in, in the film, there's a fantastic character played by Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, Bill LaBucha, you know, and this, whilst it's a fictional character, it's based on a real-life infamous butcher from an earlier era, which was Bill LaBucha Poole. And this butcher was leader of the New York gang, the Bowery Boys, again depicted in the film. He was a bare-knuckle boxer and a leader of the Know Nothing political movement. And that was a key part of the early Irish involvement and the gangs that were there, because a lot of the early immigrants believed that they were now American and that they didn't want to see New York and other parts of America flooded by what they saw as Irish immigrants, which was quite bizarre because they were originally themselves Irish immigrants. And this know-nothing political movement, again, depicted in the film, shows the battle between the existing Irish and the new Irish driven from Ireland by the famine. And we talk about the reality. Bill the Butcher in the film was depicted as living through the Civil War and being killed in a gang fight during the New York City draft riots of 1863. Whereas in the real Butcher, Bill Poole, had been murdered eight years prior on the orders of John Morrissey, who I actually talk about in my book. Now, John Morrissey was also a bare-knuckle boxer fighter, and both he and Bill the Butcher fought an infamous fight in the Five Points area, where the new Irish that come from the, the famine were all behind John Morrissey, and the existing Irish were behind Bill the Butcher. Now, Bill the Butcher actually won that, that fight, but Morrissey got his revenge because Bill the Butcher was killed just weeks after on his orders by two of John Morrissey's gang members. Now, going back to the film, in the film, Bill the Butcher's last words are, I die a true American. And they are almost exactly the same words the real Bill the Butcher who said, thank God I die a true American. Yeah, and can you talk to me about the conditions in some of the areas that became kind of Irish neighbourhoods in the great American cities? So, for example, South Boston, Hell's Kitchen, Chicago. You know, were we talking about real kind of squalor, dire poverty for many of the immigrants in the 19th century? 
You're talking about phenomenal uh, poverty words there. And you've got to take into account that these people had been driven from Ireland by famine and oppression. And when they came to America, they were willing to do anything for work. They were willing to work for whatever pay was there. So that led to two things. One, they were given poor paying conditions by the employers. But the problem was they were undercutting the existing population. And that led to extreme bias against them, discrimination and violence against them. And that brings together ghettos. And it's in these ghettos that the gangs actually started to form, that people say that the only way out of this extreme poverty is through crime. It's through organisation of gangs. And that is how many of the Irish wise guys actually began their criminal career through living in extreme poverty, by not having an education, by seeing that the only route out of this extreme poverty and deprivation is not through education, it's not through work, it's through crime. And one thing that strikes me, I mean, you'll know from your part of the world or adopted part of the world, Donegal, that, you know, prior to the famine and after the famine, was the gangster culture, let's say, of the American city in the late 19th century among the Irish at all influenced by the role of secret societies. I'm thinking of things like the Ribbon Men, the Molly Maguires, who you've written about, John Joe, you know, and the, the history of kind of the use of violence and illegal methods to resist things like uh, unjust rents, evictions, uh, uh, tithes, and so on and back in Ireland. Was there any, did that bleed over into kind of organized crime in America in any way? When you look at the Molly Maguires, they actually were created through necessity. Necessity against poor conditions and the barbaric nature of the working conditions that they had to endure. Now, if you look at what the, how the gangs that started up in America, if you look at the gophers, who were the undisputed kings of crime in Hell's Kitchen for many years, you know, the domain ran from 7th Avenue to 11th Avenue, from 14th Street to 42nd Street, you know, and Hell's Kitchen had a reputation for poverty and crime, which was endemic you know, given its nature to the river docks, which was where most people had their work and where most of the crime was more profitable. And the reason that they started to organise was, again, that they realised that the only way that they could actually make a living from the extreme poverty that were, they were enduring was to organise together, make sure that as an Irish gang, they could organise against the Italian gangs, the German gangs and the Jewish gangs and provide a living work for their own people and also ensure that they could maximise the profits from as much crime as they possibly could. And that also led them to feed upon their own people because a lot of these gangs made a lot of their money from actually protection rackets. You know, this, the mercantile class was starting to establish itself. You know, first-generation immigrants are starting to have their own shops, pubs, you know, small businesses. But the only way they were going to survive was to have protection, and that protection was coming from their own people. So I think the biggest catalyst for the creation of the gangs was that poverty and for that need to be united against what they perceived as against as... Other, what's the best word for it? The best way I would describe it is competitors in that struggle for survival. And so it became more of a, sometimes a parasitic relationship between the gangs and the population. Yes, the gangs that were established would stand up for their own people, but in many instances, they would leech and feed off their own people, which in later years would provide a kickback against the criminal network as the Irish began to be established in America and wanted to move away from their earlier slum environments and also from the crime that these slums had created. Yeah, I mean, you know, reading through your book, one thing that struck me was among the early Irish gangs, you mentioned the gophers in places like Hell's Kitchen. One of the things that they would do, this is the 1860s, you can correct me on the date, is that they would beat up policemen and take their uniforms. And that, that seems like a losing proposition to me, though. Know? And that was a fantastic story. That started out from one, one member of the Gophers wanted to make a name for himself. And it was actually the local transport police who were actually trying to fight back against the uh, Gophers who made a lot of their money through the New York uh, Central Railroads. 
which ran through their territory up to the far west side. And so what he did one day was he actually beat up one of the policemen and took his jacket off him. And he then got one of the female members of the Gophers, because the Gophers had their own, not only a, a youth wing, but actually had their own female version of the gang that was led by an infamous woman called Battle So once this guy had got the uh, uniform slightly, what shall we say, jazzed up, he began to wear it through the streets of Hell's Kitchen. And people were so impressed that they wanted their own jackets. So they then started to beat up the policemen. So eventually, after a number of policemen had lost their jackets, the authorities said, enough is enough. And that's where they actually started a campaign to try and close down the gophers. I think for a, for a fashion statement, it was a catalyst for the eventual demise of the gopher gang. I mean, this is going to anticipate one of my later questions, John Joe, but, um, you know, given the amount of Irish who later joined the NYPD, the New York Police Department, you know, was this Irish on Irish violence or was, it, or was that yet to be a thing? You've got to take into account that the Gophers were just one of the, the largest gangs. There was a whole ream of uh, Irish gangs in the Hell's Kitchens environment. And for what your phrase, Irish on Irish uh, violence, it was a common theme. You know, everybody was aspiring to be the top dog in the criminal network. Yeah, and that brings me again on to my next question, which is, you know, the Irish, and I think the Germans were the, you know, the, the immigrants of the mid-19th century. And then, but then later on, there's waves from other places like Italy, Eastern Europe, Jewish immigrants, and they formed, of course, their own gangs. And how did the Irish gangs and them interact? It wasn't always friendly, I'd imagine. It's, it's strange. The Italian gangs, very much driven by the uh, relationships that they had in Sicily and mainland uh, Italy, were very insular. You know, obviously, the phrase, a made man, you can't be a made man unless you're Sicilian. Whereas the Irish gangs were more open. At the earlier stages, the Irish gangs were accepting Polish members, German members, Jewish members. In the later stages, opening up to African-American members. And that was the main difference. But it was also the start of a battle line, the conflict that evolved between the Irish gangs and the Italian gangs. You know, it goes back to the old film, The Highlander, there can be only one, and there could only be one between the Irish mafia and the Italian mafia. You know, we talked about the gophers. The gophers would eventually fizzle out and they involved into an organised gang called the White Hand Gang. This was moulded by an individual by, called Denny Meehan, who was a notorious Irish-American gangster, until he was assassinated by Wilbur Lovett. Now, Wilbur Lovett was eventually assassinated by the Italian mafia, and his brother-in-law, Pegleg Lornigan, took over the leadership of the White Hand Gang. And perhaps it was because his brother-in-law had been assassinated by the Italian mafia, or perhaps with other less savoury feelings, Pegleg Lornigan had a paranoid hatred of the Italian mafia. He wanted to ensure that the White Hand Gang had complete dominance of the waterfront environment over the growing Italian mafia. He was so bad that sometimes if he would find out that a that a bar owner or a businessman was paying a kickback of protection money to the Italian mafia, not only would he beat them up, he would make them pay double back to the White Hand Gang. It was a real hatred between them. And it was quite a big conflict. And such was the ferocity of the White Hand Gang under Peg Leg Lonergan's leadership that a lot of the rising mafiosi were actually spirited out of New York because the Mafia feared that the White Hand Gang would kill them. And one of those young mafiosi, a guy by the name of Al Capone, Al Capone actually left New York because he, the, the leadership of the Italian Mafia feared that Pegleg Lonergan and the White Hand Gang would have him assassinated. You know, and the, the reason the White Hand Gang were so dominant was because of the violence that they ensued. You know, they were, they were an extremely violent gang of killers. And that violence led to their arrogance. You know, the Italian mafia grew slowly. They 
wanted to pick the right time. And that time came in 1925. It was actually Christmas night, 1925. And it was a famous massacre. It was at the Adonis Social Club. The Mafia had arranged for that young mafiosi, Al Capone, to come back from Chicago to take his revenge on the Irish Mafia. Pegleg Lonergan, believing that he was invincible, led his lieutenants into that speakeasy on Christmas night in Brooklyn. He believed he was indestructible. And as he walked in with all his key lieutenants, he saw Al Capone sitting in the corner. And within 10 minutes, the lights went out and all hell broke loose. And when the lights went back on, Al Capone was still sitting there, but Pegleg Lonergan and all the key leaders of the White Hand Gang were lying dead. Now, nobody was ever charged for the murders. You know, the Italian Mafia made sure that the police were all paid off, and all the remaining members of the White Hand Gang were so fearful of what happened to Pegleg that the entire gang disintegrated, and the entire structure of the Irish mob in New York was destroyed overnight. The Irish mob was destroyed by arrogance of Pegleg Lonergan. If he'd had organised properly and not tried to show that he was above <laughs> uh, any dangers from the Italian Mafia, we could have had a whole different history of New York. But as it happened, the Italian Mafia said farewell to Al Capone. He went back to Chicago and the rest of the leadership just moved in all the White Hand Gang rackets. And that is how the dominance of the, Ita the Italian mob was established over the Irish wise guys. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there you know, the violence and the brutality. And, you know, recently you've written an article for uh, my website, The Irish Story, on Vincent's Mad Dog Call. Well, a couple of things, though, that, you know, rise from that that I'd like to ask you about are, number one, you know, Vincent Call came from very troubled home life, you know. He came from what you might call a broken home and he was sent away to live with an aunt and um, he dropped out of school early and he was a very violent man. I mean, my question is really going on, on, on Mad Dog and you also made a point about this, that he was very much rejected by the community. How did the Irish community at large see these, these gangsters? Like, were they proud of them or was it more like the Mad Dog call effect where they didn't want anything to do with them? I think there's an evolution there. I think in earlier stages of the... Uh, Irish history in America, a lot of them would be looked upon as being defenders of their neighbourhood, as being defenders of their clan, shall we say. But that's the early days. The Irish diaspora looked upon some of the early criminals, especially the gangs, as being defenders of their area, defenders of their neighbourhood. And especially when, when prohibition started, you know, people liked to drink. They wanted to still have a drink. And they saw a lot of these gangsters as somebody who would provide them with a drink. However, prohibition was a catalyst for two things. It was the catalyst for a massive expansion of organised crime. And it was also the taper that lit the massive boom of violence that started to overtake 20s and 30s America, especially through organised crime. And that started to put off the Irish-American population as they established themselves in their new homes, as they established themselves in education, as they started to move into the American civil service, as their children went on to college and became lawyers and accountants and started to become into the professional classes. And as the Irish population moved into professional classes, then organised crime and the, their fellow Irish who were involved in it became an embarrassment and became a distraction and became something that, that was to be abhorred and not looked upon with any form of respect or admiration. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but I want to come back to it, is that, you know, in the early 20th century, you know, the Irish American was still basically a working class kind of community, but they were, a, in a way, a powerful working class community in the sense that they dominated jobs in the police and the fire department and also a lot of the Democratic Party's machinery. So, I mean, I'm wondering how they got along in that sense with the organised crime. Is it rejection or is there also a bit of corruption going on and overlap between the two? I think the word that you put there is overlap. Let's take a step back, right? The key thing about the Irish in America is they integrated. They were one of the first uh, 
ethnic populations to really embrace themselves in what you probably call the American civil service, as you say, the police, the harbour force, and also in politics. You know, one of the key drivers in, in political America was the Tammany Hall organization of Democratic Party in New York, which fed into other political organizations in Boston and Chicago and Philadelphia, other massive uh, areas of Irish immigration. And that political influence grew on the back of criminal influence. Because if you look at the early history of organized politics in, through Irish Americans, a lot of it overlaps with the history of organized crime. You know, Joseph Kennedy, the founder of the, the, the Kennedy dynasty, was both a politician, but also was involved in some unsavory activities before he moved into that political world. And again, it's a, a stepladder. You know, they used the criminal activity to create the funds to create respectability. And a lot of that was going on. You know, people would move in from crime to respectability. If you look, read my book, there's John Morrissey, who started off as a, a brothel keeper, a bar opener, a bare knuckle boxer fighter, and ended up in the US Congress, as a, obviously as a congressman. And that is a real metaphor for the journey of the Irish in America. They use whatever means possible to move up that ladder of respectability. And in his later years, John Morrissey would deny his involvement in organized crime as a US congressman. However, that was what got him where he was. And that, that was true for a lot of the Irish. But as I say, over time, as they integrated in the civil service, as the, their children and grandchildren started to get educated and move up the social classes, that admiration and involvement organized crime turned to abhorrence and then started to a greater enforcement against the Irish wise guys. And you had the perfect example there of uh, Vincent Mad Dog Call. You know, it, was, it wasn't just his fellow Irish that turned their back on him. It was actually his cousins that turned their back on him because they had tried to establish themselves in the legitimate business and what they perceived as their new home where they would grow a future for themselves and their children. And they wanted no part in organised crime, despite the glamour that a lot of them uh, were promoted. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking of that very thing, actually. I mean, the other thing that I was going to ask about that was it probably wasn't just a question of the Irish presence, but there seems to have been a lot of, you know, low to middle level, at least corruption in the police departments of many of the great American cities like Vincent Cole, who you've written about, seems to have operated with impunity, despite the fact that what he was doing was kidnapping people and holding them for ransom, some of whom were criminals, but some of whom weren't. And it, it seems to me that there was a certain amount of uh, toleration of it by the police department. Let me tell you two stories, right? Let's go over to Chicago in 1924. We have Dino Banyan and his Northside gang. One of the biggest uh, heists that they pulled off when, was in 1924 when they robbed the Sibley Distillery and took all the, what was previously legally distilled alcohol that had been kept in that brewery since the beginning of Prohibition. And they did that with the assistance and the protection of the Chicago Police Department, who they completely paid off. So that was a joint operation between the Chicago Police Department and the Northside Gang in Chicago to rob the biggest distillery in Chicago. So that's one example. Another example is a guy who, who I talk about in my book called Bill Dwyer. I don't know if you've heard of him. His nickname was the King of the Rum Runners. He believed that prohibition was a business opportunity. He didn't think of himself as a gangster. He thought himself as a legitimate businessman who was involved in an illegitimate <laughs> occupation. He didn't like violence. He saw the early gangsters operate in prohibition and he saw that they failed usually and they turned 
to brewing their own alcohol, which if it didn't kill you, could make you go blind. So he wanted to get his hands on all the alcohol that was sitting there that had been brewed before Prohibition, a bit like O'Banion in Chicago. So what he did was he decided to bribe everybody. Everybody involved in the chain, he would bribe to get access to their warehouses where he would take all the booze. And he bribed the entire police department. And because he bribed so many people, he was inundated by Coast Guards, Fire Department, Police Department, any organisation you can imagine, who came to him and said, can we have a bribe as well? <laughs> and such was the money that he paid out that he was able to flood America with illegally legal booze. But the problem with, well, not the problem, the attraction of his alcohol was it was legally brewed outside America. He would then import it off the coast and then use high-speed boats to then take it into New York, Boston, Philadelphia, all over the country. And he made so much money that he was the catalyst to sit down with people like Lucky Luciano and the Italian Mafia to form the Combine. And the Combine is what became the business operation for the entire Prohibition era organized crime. And that was driven by his desire to make Prohibition a business and also his ability to bribe anybody in law enforcement from the police to the Coast Guards to politicians. And that sort of highlights the fact that, yes, it was organised crime, but it wasn't stopped by the authorities, and probably for two reasons. The first one was there wasn't enough that would stop it, and two, because of the bribes, there was no desire to stop it. Yeah, I mean, talking about the era of Prohibition, one character I want to talk about uh, is O'Neill Madden. Uh, O'Neill oh, yeah. Madden, sorry. Uh, and the reason I find him fascinating in your book, John Joe, is because he spans these different eras. He's in one of the very first gangs, the Gophers, but he becomes, as you said, you know, a major gangland figure in the era of Prohibition and eventually wants to portray himself as a legitimate businessman. So can you talk us through a bit, little bit the life of, of Oni Madden? Oni Madden was originally from Leeds and uh, of Irish mother and father, and he then came to America. And he had... He wasn't brought up, he was he was dragged up. Again, it shows you that history of a lot of the, the Irish wise guys didn't have the family life. His family was the Gophers, the Gopher gang. And to, sh to earn, well, let's use the Italian phrase for it, to earn his bones in the Irish Mafia, he earned his nickname, The Killer, because by the time he was a teenager, he had killed a number of, a number of men. And he was an extremely violent man. And a lot of that violence was driven by his uh, paranoid jealousy of anybody that would touch any of, the, of his girlfriends. In fact, he killed a number of people because of over women. And the reason I mention that is because that has an impact on his later life and it shows his evolution. And he was in a, when, when he went into jail, the gophers were still going. When he came out of jail, the, the entire landscape had changed. You know, the White Hand Gang had been destroyed in this, this, by the Italian Mafia. The Italian Mafia was now in the ascendancy. And Madden came out of jail not knowing what to do. Prohibition had started. So the first thing he really did was he hijacked another criminal gang's lorry load of booze. This could either be a, a major mistake or a great opportunity. And it actually turned into a great opportunity because that booze actually belonged to Bill Dwyer. And Bill Dwyer, as we know him, he believed that prohibition was a business. He didn't like violence. And he contacted Madden and said, I want to speak to you. Now, Madden thought, oh, no, this is going to be a hit on me. But it was actually Dwyer wanted to sit down with Madden and give him a proposition. It wasn't well, like the Italian mafia. It wasn't a, an offer he couldn't refuse. It was, it was an offer that was very attractive to him. Dwyer knew that if he wanted to keep control of his criminal business network, 
he had to have somebody with the connections and let's face it, the violent tendencies of somebody like Oni Madden. So Oni Madden and Dwyer became business partners. For a man with a nickname like Killer, Madden was a highly intelligent individual. It was him that convinced Dwyer to use the vast amounts of money that he was making as part of the combine through prohibition to diversify from alcohol. He encouraged them to buy what would later become the Cotton Club. He encouraged them to get involved in boxing. So involved in boxing were really that uh, Dwyer and Madden fixed more than one heavyweight championship of the world. Madden could see that regardless of how powerful Dwyer was, that the days of the Irish power and control over the combine were numbered. The Italian mafia, especially under Lucky Luciano, were becoming more and more powerful. And eventually, when the Italian mafia forced Dwyer out of New York, Madden realised it was time to move as well. Or he would probably face not only a, an offer of a, out of the business, it would be an offer of out of life. So Madden, he would tell people he, he retired, but he moved to Arkansas and he actually controlled all the crime in Arkansas without being a headline or being too heavily known to the authorities. But another thing about Oni Madden, the two things I love about him in later life, is the first thing is that he was one of the first people that Robert Kennedy put in front of his Senate commission on organized crime. And when you actually see the pictures of Oni Madden, before people remember Oni Madden as being a fantastically well-dressed gangster, when he turned up at the Senate committee and he organized crime, he had a tartan scarf and a tammy and looked like anybody's grandfather. And what I loved about it was he would sit there and Robert Kennedy, who was determined to make his name and going after the organized crime, would always ask Madden about all his involvement, the involvement of the Italian mafia, and his involvement in Arkansas. And all Madden would say to, to Kennedy was, I plead the fifth. Every question, I plead the fifth. And I sometimes believe that a lot of the later gangster movies, where you see these scenes where the old gangsters sit there and say, I plead the fifth, must be heavily influenced by Oni Madden. Another thing I like about Oni Madden's later life is for a man who was a renowned womanizer, you know, he had so many girlfriends. One of his most famous girlfriends was Mae West, you know? Mae West, the actress. And when she was later asked about Oni, her time with Oni Madden, she said he was also delicious, but also vicious, you know? So, and Madden also funded Mae West's Broadway shows. And where I'm going with this is that Madden was a notorious womanizer. In his youth, he had killed other men because of his jealousy over the women he was involved with. But when he moved to Arkansas, he fell in love with a, a spinster postmistress and remained, he married her virtually as soon as after he got to Arkansas and he remained married for the rest of his life and he remained faithful for the rest of his life. So I don't know if that's a, a redemption story or just a man who just wanted to have a quiet life. But only the Madden is a, a strange individual because unlike Vincent Mad Dog Call, Jack Legs Diamond, you know, even Dutch Schultz, a great rival of his, he didn't die a violent death. Only Madden died happily in his bed. Not bad for a man who was called only the killer. Indeed. I mean, you mentioned that the Irish mob, and also I think it's true to say that the Jewish mob of the 20s and 30s eventually got eclipsed by the Italian mafia, who seemed to have been better organised at it. But, I mean, can we talk about some of the later Irish gangs, such as the Westies of New York City? Are they from the 1950s and 60s, I think, if I'm not mistaken? The Westies were really what I would call uh, an evolution of the Irish mob and an evolution not only in organisation, but also in violence. You know, the NYPD organised crime squad and the FBI were once asked how many people had the, the Westies murdered? And they believed that between 1968 and 1986, they had killed 100 people, you know? And this is probably because they were existing alongside 
a very violent Italian mafia. You know, over time, they had very close links with the Gambino crime family and with a certain individual called John Gotti. But it wasn't always like that. You know, in the beginning, the Westies were headed up by a guy called Mickey Spillane. You know, not the, not the writer, a gangster who was looked upon as a gentleman in the people of Hell's Kitchen. You know, he would send flowers to those in the hospital and he always ensured that poor families had something to eat. Now, he wasn't a saint. He was a loan shark and he was also an infamous kidnapper. He was not adverse to kidnapping local businessmen and members of other criminal gangs. But he was highly intelligent and he wanted the Westies to move beyond what we'd call petty crime. He wanted to be a true rival to the Italian mafia to try and get back the ascendancy for the Irish mob that they once had under the White Hand Gang. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to move into the construction rackets, which was just starting to evolve, which was a, a real coup for them because they were so successful that they controlled all the unions on all the major building work in New York, New York Coliseum, Madison Square Gardens, and the Convention Center. And they were soon earning millions. But the problem was that this made the Italian mafia extremely, extremely jealous. Now, the Gambinos, who are, were not on the scene yet, it was more the Genovese crime family. They hated the fact that the Westies under Spillane had the construction centre. And they wanted to get control of all the buildings and all the unions. And a, a mini war sort of started. And you'd think that because of the resources that the Italian Mafia would have, they would have won it. But the smaller in numbers Westies didn't flinch and they fought back against the Italian Mafia. So the Genovese family decided that rather than go for the body, i.e. the Westies gang members, they would go for the head and they wanted to arrange a hit on Mickey Spillane. And they turned to an old enemy of Mickey Spillane, a man who would eventually become the head of the Westies crime outfit himself, a guy by the name of Jimmy Conan. Now, Conan and Spillane had been enemies for years. Previously, Spillane had snatched Conan's father, John, the local businessman, and held him for ransom. The family paid the money, but in a sign of great disrespect, Spillane had actually pistol-whipped and severely beaten Jimmy Conan's father before he returned him. And Conan, even though he was only 18 years old, had sworn revenge. In an absolutely comical attempt at assassination, when he was only 18 years old, sounds like a song there, he stood up on a, a rooftop with a submachine gun and tried to assassinate Mickey Spillane. But bizarrely, even with a submachine gun, all the bullets missed. <laughs> you know, you would think that Spillane would then have Conan killed. But such was the nature of uh, Mickey Spillane that he felt that Jimmy Coonan was just a mad, stupid child and let him live. And that was probably the biggest mistake that he ever made because over the years, Conan turned into a, a vicious gangster who worked very closely with the Genovese family. He was put in jail a couple of times, but when he came out, the problem was that he wanted to take over the leadership of the gang. And the Genovese family hired a hit on Mickey Spillane and had him assassinated. And Jimmy Coonan became leader of the Westies. And that's when the Westies completely changed. Previously, yes, they had been organised crime. Yes, they'd been involved in petty crime. They'd moved into the construction industry. They were not adverse to uh, extreme violence. But it was usually against the Italian Mafia and other gangs. Jimmy Coonan didn't care who the violence was inflicted upon. Soon, the people of Hell's Kitchen, who the, who the Westies had previously protected, were now leached upon. Nobody was safe. Everybody was fair game. In fact, any supporter of Mickey Spillane, be they a member of the Westies or a local resident, was either beaten or killed. Kunun was determined to erode all vestiges of any support for Mickey Spillane. And that's when the Westies then became really entrenched with the Gambino crime family and especially John Gotti. Such was the viciousness of the Westies under Jimmy Coonan that they actually became the official hitmen of the Gambino crime family. 
And perhaps that's why it explains the NYPD figures of 100 murders. You know, the Westies really became a vicious gang under Jimmy Coonan. Now, if you listen to the reminiscences of uh, retired mafiosi, there seem to be quite a lot of them, actually, who want to speak out these days. Italians are speaking of Italian-Americans. They speak about the 1980s as a great watershed because they introduced the RICO Act, which made it easier yes. for the American government to dismantle, you know, organised crime. And did this affect the, what was left of the Irish mob by that time? The RICO Act is what brought down the Westies and Jimmy Coonan because Jimmy Coonan had a lieutenant called Mickey Featherstone. He was an army vet. He was a proud Irishman. He was a proud Westie, but he was a loyal lieutenant to Coonan. But the problem was he resented the influence of John Gotti and the Gambinos over Jimmy Coonan in the Westies. He believed that the Westies had lost all their identity and he believed that they were becoming just a, a sidekick, a, a part of the Gambino fine family rather than a criminal gang in their own entity. And he felt that Coonan was now betraying all the Irish Americans in Hell's Kitchen. Now, Jimmy Coonan found out about this and rather than uh, have Featherstone assassinated, he decided to frame him for murder and it was a well well-defined frame, and Featherstone was arrested, but he knew he didn't do it. Yes, he had killed many, many people, but he didn't do this murder, and he he went to the authorities and said, I'll do a deal. And they used the RICO Act and Mickey Featherstone's testimony to put Jimmy Coonan behind bars for life. And with Coonan's imprisonment, the Westies gang began, began to disintegrate, and that was very much driven by... Uh, Rudy Giuliano and the RICO Act and the whistleblowing of Michael Featherstone to destroy yeah. Jimmy Coonan and the uh, the Westies. And that same RICO Act, with all, as you know, put John Gotti behind bars for life. Yeah, and for listeners who aren't familiar, the RICO Act is racketeering and corrupt organisations, I think is the acronym stands for. But what it means is effectively you can be prosecuted for anything that the organisation does. So it's, it's a very wide-ranging kind of legislation. And you could also be prosecuted for what anybody in the organisation said you did. Right, yeah. So, you know, there's elements of <laughs> which, to home there. Which is what Mickey Featherston did to uh, Jimmy Coonan. Yeah, and I mean, we don't really have time to go into in depth, uh, John Joe, but we should mention before we, we leave the topic, uh, Whitey Bulger of Boston and his kind of notorious career. Well, let's face it, Whitey Bulger is a strange individual. A man of extreme violence, a man probably only loved one thing in his entire life, which was his young son. And sadly, his young son died of a terminal illness. Previously, Whitey Bulger had been extremely violent, but once his young son died, there was extreme psychosis and extreme violence. A lot of it was what was because he turned to drugs and a highly unstable individual such as himself became completely unhinged and unleashed a, a wave of violence that uh, Boston had never seen. And yet he was a, a long-time informant from the, for the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The reason that Whitey Bulger was able to build up his criminal network in Boston was because he was an FBI informant to bring down the Italian mafia. And Whitey Bulger also had a long-term involvement with the uh, Republican struggle. And he, he once said to the FBI, who wanted information from him on Northern Ireland and his activities, he said, I'll rat on the Italians, but I'll never rat on the Irish. I do, I do take Whitey Bulger's sense of honour with a pinch of salt, but that's just me. Um, I mean, oh, oh, yeah. I mean, to wrap, to wrap up, though, John Joe, I mean, you know, unfortunately, you know, we have organised crime here in Ireland now, not just Irish America. So, I mean, I, this, for me, anyway, this removes kind of a little bit of the nostalgia, you know, for the prohibition era and the hire of gangsters. But, I mean, in terms of Irish America, though, I mean, you talked about, it, you know, Irish Americans became respectable and became middle class and so on. Is there still a pool of, of um, recruits, if you like, for an Irish mob, or is that just a thing of the past now? Two things. First one is Irish wise guys is in no way an uh, attempt to glorify these, these gangsters sometimes get enthused about the stories because it, they're so interesting. But we have to take into account these men, whilst they were highly intelligent, and they could have been so many different things in another life, a lot of them had a real evil streak in them and did some despicable things, and in no way should they be uh, glorified. And when you talk about 
is there still organised crime? Let's go back to the Westies. The Westies ceased to be an Irish gang really after the imprisonment of Kunin. They were in fact taken over by believe it or not, Serbian nationalists at one stage. You know, this shows you the the uh, inclusivity of the, the, the Irish mob at that time. Are they still in existence? Well, the district attorney's office, when they were investigating the criminal activities of the Westies, when they were asked, do the Westies remain? Their answer was, it's not the end of the gang. So yes, organised crime is still there. Is it on the same levels? I would say not. And I think a lot of this is driven by the fact, especially for the Irish, is that the Irish in America have evolved. They've moved up the social stratas. They've integrated into all aspects and all fabrics of American life. And some of the conditions, the, the abuse, the poverty, the extreme poverty, are not there to drive the social ills that lead to crime and then organised crime. And sadly, as you say there, some of those conditions that drive organised crime are all too present in modern Ireland. When you look at some of the, the situations around the country where you, where you see extreme poverty leading to organised crime. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that sombre note, I think we'll leave it there. So thanks very much, John McGinley. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed this talk with us. Thank you very much. And if anybody wants to get a copy of Irish Wise Guys, it's available from our website, irishwiseguys.ie. So that was John Joe McGinley talking to John Dorney about the Irish American mob. So please follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show as it really helps us. So until next time, my name's Cahill Brennan and thank you for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.